everyone got super quiet. <laughs> good morning. How is everyone today? Is anyone good? Yes. Okay. It's so great to see your beautiful faces. Um, we're just going to dive right into worship. Is that okay? We don't really have announcements. I mean, if we do, you've been watching them. Look on our bulletin. Check the email. <laughs> That's how you're going to get the updates from our church. Um, but for now, why don't you go ahead and stand. I'm going to be real with you. Can I be real with you? Is that okay? I really strive for authenticity here. Um, I chose this first song because I needed it this week. And as I thought about it and I kept playing it because I needed this reminder, I thought maybe some other people need to hear this too. I can't be alone in this. So here we are declaring that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And in the darkness and in the high moments and everything in between, we can say that the Lord is our strength. Amen? Let's sing it.
this last song, I'm going to warn you, this is an old song. My teenagers up here didn't know it. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. It's also really simple. Um, But I just want to say, this is is always the case here, but I think sometimes maybe we forget, and so I just want to remind you that these altars aren't like a magical place. This is not like the only place that the presence of the Lord is, right? But you are welcome to come here. If you need a concentrated time of prayer, or you're welcome to sit down. You're welcome to lay down, kneel at your chair. Like there is freedom in this place for you to follow the posture of your heart that your heart says, Lord, I I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment that I'm awake, Lord, have your way. And I don't know about you, I just had a pressing on my mind this whole week. I am after the heart of the Lord. I just want his heart because it's a really confusing world out there. Anybody with me? So confusing, but I want the heart of the Lord and I want to seek him. And I know that's your heart and your, your prayer too. And I just want to make space for that. If you want to be here, if you want to sit down, if you want to not sing this song, that's fine too. If you just want to make this your like extended prayer time, Let's do that here and now, can we? This is my desire to
surface at specific times, God, you know us so well that you know what our frustrations are. You know what our weaknesses are. You know what our fears are. And God, you speak to us this morning with love and with compassion. And you tell us to look to you as simply as taking every breath in, knowing you and acknowledging you and letting every breath out, Lord, knowing you and acknowledging you. Father, may we do that this morning. God, I pray this morning that nothing would distract us from being in your presence today. Nothing would keep us from hearing what you want from us today. Nothing would keep us from knowing the relationship that we have with you and the love that you have for us. Fill this place, God, with you this morning. We want you. We want to experience you. We want to know you. Father, be with us as we are here. Be with us as we talk with each other, as we listen to what each other needs, Lord. Be with us as we worship together and as we hear your word that you've laid on the hearts of our pastors this morning. Father, let every single moment that we spend here be done so with you at the forefront of our mind, Lord, and our knowledge of your love for us in our hearts. Thank you so much for who you are to us and for what we have because of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. This is definitely going to be one of those days where I really miss being upstairs with the kids because I desperately want to give each and every one of you a piece of paper and a pair of scissors right now. Um, I brought Emerson up here to help me because I can't hold paper and cut and talk all at the same time. It's like chewing gum while skipping and jump roping and all of that. So this morning I want to um, have you guys start to think about a word. There you guys ready? Mind's cleared. I'm going to put this word in your mind, and I want you to like kind of think about what comes with it. The word is impossible. So as I say that, I want you to think about maybe times this week that you have said that something was impossible. You've seen something that seemed impossible. You've seen something happen that everybody said was impossible. And I want you to kind of think about that word. Um, this week, I wanted to give Emerson the chance to experience something that seemed impossible. So I walked up to him one day and I said, Emerson, you will never believe this, but I just fit my entire body through a piece of paper. I walked right through it. And he looked at me and what'd you say? That's impossible. And I said, no, no, it's not. I, I, I did. I, I took this piece of paper and I could fit my entire body through it. And so, of course, Emerson being Emerson goes, okay, well, if you can do it, 
So can I. And so do you want to show him some of the things you tried with it? Hang on. First put it on the floor, and he's trying to, like, stretch it up around his feet. and I'm trying to use a ruler to measure my body, and I'm measuring the paper to see what that, but I don't know how to do that without having one end fully cut. So then he cut a hole out of the middle, and it was really cute. He's like, check out my belt, because he was able to get it up right about to to here. (laughs) But then I reminded him, I was like, Emerson, I fit through the paper. I was like, that belt is going to maybe come up one leg. And so then he's sitting, and he's just looking at me, and he goes, oh, you're going to have to tell me how to do that. And I said, okay, I will, but I'm going to give you very specific instructions and very specific tools to use. And so I'm going to let Emerson go ahead and get started on that. While I talk about what we're doing today. So today we are continuing in this epic journey The next person up that we're going to talk about is Gideon. And so we've seen impossible after impossible after impossible things actually end up being possible, right? And so that got me thinking. I'm like, so often we read our Bibles, and we are to the point where we are almost so desensitized to this. We expect those impossible things in the Bible. There are very few stories that I read through and I get to the end and think, well, yeah, that's how I would have done it. That makes sense. Totally point A to point B. But yet when I have things in my life that I can't see a way around, I can't see a way through, I'm really quick to say, well, that just seems impossible. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to happen. How you doing there, Emerson? What do you got so far? You going to hold it up? You want to show them? Show them your progress. Show them your progress. (laughs) Well, at this point, the paper's actually gotten smaller, and now it's got a lot of cuts in it. Let me see it real quick. Okay, so we're still not anywhere close to being able to get through that paper. Keep going. All right, so Gideon is, again, another one in this line of people who God calls out to do something that seems impossible. And it's funny because God actually finds him when he's hiding. So Gideon's not even out there, like, pretending like he is wanting to lead an army, pretending like he wants to go into battle. He's actually hiding. And God says, okay, this is is how this is going to happen. And if you have not read the story of Gideon, like, you need to, or you need to just watch a video version of it. If you've got kids, there's a Superbook app. And let me tell you, like, seeing a dramatized version of this is, it's insane. All of the ways that God continually changes what looks to be impossible and says, yeah, I'm going to take this one step further. So Gideon's like, okay, well, if this is going to happen, I need the fleece, and it needs to be wet, and this is going to be dry. And then the flip-flop happens. And then he's like all of his army, and his army keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, right? And so this is looking more and more impossible as it goes on. But we know that through all of that, like nothing is really impossible for God. So I want you to think about things that we've said are impossible. That is such a a subjective thing. That's something that I'm looking at what I'm doing. Maybe it's learning a new song on the piano. Maybe it's learning how to drive. Maybe it's learning how to, learning a new foreign language. Or you know what, maybe it's getting up every morning and just keep going. Maybe it's trying to figure out a way forward in a relationship that's broken, and that looks like a piece of paper in front of me. And so as we are hearing these stories, I think God's calling us to really reimagine what that word really means. And when we use the word impossible, we're saying it just seems like we can't do it on our own, and I can't do any of my life on my own. So maybe when we 
use that word impossible, that's going to be a reminder to us that we're really, we need to lean and focus in on God. All right, Emerson, are you ready? What do you got? Bring it up here. All right, so this looks pretty uh, not promising, but... So maybe this week you need to go home and you need to write something down on a piece of paper and hang it up in your house, something that's staring you down that seems impossible. You can't see a way through it. You can't see a way around it. Um, One of my really good friends has a sign hanging up in her house, and I love it because it says, nothing's impossible. The very word itself says, I'm possible. So let's think about that this week. It might be impossible. It might seem impossible for us, but to God, everything's possible. I actually thought Mara was going to do the, the cool trick from the story of Gideon where like puts a, uh, an offering on the altar and it was just going to spontaneously combust. And, uh, but that was pretty cool too. Uh, that, was, that was pretty cool. Uh, a big guy like me might not have fit through there. So I'm glad you chose Emerson to, uh, to, to go through there. Uh, well, as, as Mara said, we've been in this, uh, in this series, in this journey called Epic, and, and we've been tracking through uh, the Old Testament. We've been tracking alongside the people of God. We've, uh, we've, we've followed them since they, since they were freed from slavery, from the Egyptians, and, they, and we walked with them from spying out their promised land to realizing that it was a little bit too scary, and, and so pulling back and then wandering and then crossing the river and eventually going into the promised land. We've been walking alongside this epic adventure and all along we've, we've kind of had this idea that this is the story of the people of God. But the cool thing about the story of the people of God is that we get to join in that story. Right, and so we're reading a story—the story of our past, of our of our ancestors, of those who have come before me. But what we know about the story of God is that He invites us to join in that story, and so we learn from things that from from those who have gone on before us. And God says, "What about us? Where do we fit in this story?" And so this morning where we're picking up our story, the, the Israelites are now in the promised land. They've, they've gone in, and last week we talked about uh, Joshua, and Joshua had, had uh, led his, his army to march around the city uh, for seven days, and, and they took over the city, and they're finally in their long-awaited promised land. They're, they're where they, they were supposed to be, they're where, where God had promised that they would be, and they're, and they're doing their thing, and they're finally there. And what we see is that uh, in the midst of the promised land, their relationship with God is anything but consistent, right? It's a lot of ups and downs. It's a lot of turning toward God and following God, but then forgetting about God and turning and being tempted by by other idols and gods and and worshiping other gods and the gods of the culture, and, and they turn from God, and then we see them turning back to God. And where we find ourselves today is in the period of Judges. In fact, we're going to be reading from Judges chapter 6, but this period of Judges is in this time where the people of God had been following God and then turning from God. Uh, in the midst of turning from God, that led to significant oppression and hardships in their lives. And what God did was sent judges, now this isn't judges like the courtroom judge that we think of, but, but instead deliverers. God sent deliverers to deliver the people of God, and then that in turn caused them to turn and follow God once again. 
And so one of these judges that we are going to look at was named Gideon. Again, this was someone who delivered the people of God from the hands of oppression and hardship. And so, uh, as Mara said, this story is rather fascinating. This, this is a really good story. In fact, I'm actually going to read a little bit of a lengthy portion of this story, just because for me to try to summarize the story would miss out on some of the details and the nuances that I think are really significant. And so I just want you to, to put on your listening ears for a minute, put on your imaginative listening ears, try to place yourself in this story, maybe even close your eyes if you can do so without falling asleep, but you can even close your eyes and imagine yourself in this story as I retell the story of God using Gideon to deliver the people. Again, this is from Judges 6 and 7. Yet again, the people of Israel went back to doing evil in God's sight. God put them under the domination of Midian for seven years. Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves hideouts in the mountains, caves and forts. When Israel planted its crops... Midian and Amalek, the Easterners, would invade them, camp in their fields, and destroy their crops all the way down to Gaza. They left nothing for them to live on, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. Bringing their cattle and tents, they came in and took over, like an invasion of locusts, and their camels passed counting. They marched in and devastated the country. The people of Israel, reduced to grinding poverty by Midian, cried out to God for help. One time, when the people of Israel had cried out to God because of Midian, God sent them a prophet with this message. God, the God of Israel, your God, says, I delivered you from Egypt. I freed you from a life of slavery. I rescued you from Egypt's brutality and then from every oppressor. I pushed them out of your way and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am God, your God. Don't for a minute be afraid of the God of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But you didn't listen to me. One day, the angel of God came and sat down under the oak Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, whose son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress out of sight of the Midianites. The angel of God appeared to him and said, God is with you, O mighty warrior. Gideon replied, With me, my master? If God is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all the miracle wonders our parents and grandparents told us about, telling us, didn't God deliver us from Egypt? The fact is, God has nothing to do with us. He has turned us over to Midian. But God faced him directly. Go in this strength that is yours. Save Israel from Midian. Haven't I just sent you? And said to him, me, my master, how and with what could I ever save Israel? Look at me, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the runt of the litter. God said to him, I'll be with you. Believe me, you'll defeat Midian as one man. Gideon said, if you're serious about this, do me a favor. 
Give me a sign to back up what you're telling me. Don't leave until I come back and bring you my gift. God said, I'll wait till you get back. Gideon went and prepared a young goat and a huge amount of unraised bread. He used over a half a bushel of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and took them back under the shade of the oak tree for a sacred meal. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unraised bread, place that on the rock, and pour the broth on them. So Gideon did it. The angel of God stretched out the tip of a stick he was holding and touched the meat and the bread. Fire broke out of the rock and burned up the meat and bread while the angel of God slipped away out of, the, out of sight. And Gideon knew it was the angel of God. Gideon said, oh no, Master God, I have seen the angel of God face to face. But God reassured him, easy now, don't panic, you won't die. And here's what happened that night. God said to him, take your father's best seven-year-old bull, the prime one. Tear down your father's Baal altar and chop down the Asherah fertility pole beside it. Then build an altar to God, your God, on the top of this hill. Take the prime bull and present it as a whole burnt offering, using firewood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. Gideon did exactly what God had told him. But because of his family and the people in the neighborhood, he was afraid to do it openly. So he did it that night. Early in the morning, the people in town were shocked to find Baal's altar torn down. The Asher pole beside it chopped down and the prime bull burning away on the altar that had been built. They kept asking, who did this? Questions and more questions and then finally the answer, Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded to Joash, bring out your son, he must die. Why, he tore down the Baal altar and chopped down the Asherah tree. But Joash stood up to the crowd, pressing in on him. Are you going to fight Baal's battles for him? Are you going to save him? Anyone who takes Baal's side will be dead by morning. If Baal is a god, in fact, let him fight his own battles and defend his own altar. All the Midianites and Amalekites got together and prepared for battle. He blew his ram's horn trumpet, and the Abizarites came out, ready to follow him. He dispatched messengers all through Manasseh, calling them to the battle. They all came. Gideon said to God, If this is right, if you are using me to save Israel as you said, then look, I'm placing a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If dew is on the fleece only, but the floor is dry, then I know that you will use me to save Israel, as you said. And so that's what happened. When he got up early the next morning, he wrung out the fleece, enough dew to fill a bowl with water. And then Gideon said to God, don't be impatient with me, but let me say one more thing. I want to try another time with the fleece, but this time let the fleece stay dry while the dew drenches the ground around it. And God made it happen that very night. Only the fleece was dry while the ground was wet with dew. So Gideon, ready to go to battle, got up early the next morning. All his troops right there with him prepared to go to battle. Now God said to Gideon, you have too large an army with you. I can't turn Midian over to them like this. They'll take all the credit saying, I did it all myself and forget about me. 
make a public announcement. Anyone afraid, anyone who has qualms at all may leave Mount Gilead now and go home. 22 companies headed for home. 10 companies were left. God said to Gideon, there are still too many. Take them down to the stream and I'll make a final cut. When I say this one goes with you, he'll go. When I say this one doesn't go, he won't go. So Gideon took the troops down to the stream. God said to Gideon, everyone who laps with his tongue the way a dog laps, set on one side, and everyone who kneels to drink, drinking with his face to the water, set on the other side. 300 lapped with their tongues from their cupped hands. All the rest knelt to drink. God said to Gideon, I'll use the 300 men who lapped at the stream to save you and give Midian into your hands. All the rest may go home. After Gideon took all their provisions and trumpets, he sent all the Israelites home. He took up his position with the 300 men. That night, God told Gideon, get up and go down to the camp. I've given it to you. If you have any doubts about going, go down with Purah, your armor bearer. When you, when you hear what they're saying, you'll be bold and confident. He and his armor bearer went down near the place where sentries were posted. Midian and Amalek, all the Easterners, were spread out on the plain like a swarm of locusts. And their camels passed counting, like grains of sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just in time to hear a man tell his friend a dream. He said, I had this dream. A loaf of barley bread tumbled in the Midianite camp. It came to the tent and hit so hard it collapsed. The tent fell. His friend said, this has to be the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has turned Midian, the whole camp, over to him. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he went to his knees before God in prayer. Then he went back to the Israelite camp and said, get up and get going. God has just given us the Midianite army. The people of God had been oppressed. They were living in hardship. They were living in a time of oppression. Now the backdrop to this oppression that they were facing was this constant turning away from God, from Yahweh, to follow other gods of the culture. Now I want to be careful as I'm going through this, I want to be careful to not make any blanket statements about oppression being a punishment from, for turning from God. That's not my spot to say that, so I don't want to make blanket statements. But what I do think is clear is this. When we are trying to follow more than one God, we can't live the way that Yahweh intends for us. When we're following multiple gods, when we're following multiple idols, we can't live the way that God has intended for us. It's kind of like having two conductors in an orchestra. If you remember last week, Pastor Paul gave this illustration about an orchestra, and if in the orchestra there was a celloist, I think is the proper terminology, a cello player who decides that instead of the beautiful classical piece that the orchestra is playing and the conductor is, is conducting through, if this celloist decides that he wants to play a Beatles song instead while everybody else is playing this classical beautiful piece that the conductor is instructing, if this celloist decides to play the Beatles, everything is going to be off. The orchestra is going to sound off and we're not going to have 
that beautiful piece. Well, kind of going on with that, that uh, picture of the orchestra, likewise, if you have an orchestra who wants to be all on the same page, but if you have more than one conductor who is conducting different things and different time signatures and different notes and they're conducting different things and one is telling one section to come in at the other t- when another one is telling another section to come in, we miss out on the beauty of the piece from the orchestra. It's chaos. It's not beautiful. When we don't, when we're following multiple gods, we can't live the way that God intended for us. So God sends Gideon to be a deliverer in this time of oppression. And I can't help but see the humor in this story. God comes to Gideon while threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, there's some cultural nuances that maybe we lose here because most of us aren't threshing wheat or making wine from wine presses. But the fact is, is that when you're threshing wheat, you would not do it in a wine press. A threshing floor for threshing wheat is kind of a level, uh, a level spot on top of the ground. A wine press was dug into the ground. The only reason that Gideon would be threshing wheat inside the ground is because he was scared and he was hiding because of the oppression in the Midianites who would come and steal the crops. And so Gideon is hiding, threshing wheat in a wine press. Again, when you're threshing wheat, it needs to be on top because part of the threshing process is the wind blowing through and blowing away the chaff so that you can get the good stuff. Guess what? When you're in a hole in a wine press, the wind doesn't blow through there. So the only reason that Gideon would be in that wine press threshing wheat is because he was scared of the Midianites. And God comes and tells him that he will deliver them from the Midianites. And of course, we see that Gideon needs a sign. Gideon needs a little bit of a nudge to go and do what God is telling him to do. And God gives it to him. God gives him the sign that he needs, and so Gideon begins to prepare for battle to take on the Midianites, and as he's getting ready to go to battle, as he's preparing his men, and he's thinking about his strategy, and he's thinking about his plan of how this is going to play out, he begins to get cold feet. Remember, this is Gideon who was hiding in a wine press. He begins to get cold feet, and so he needs another sign, and God gives him that sign. And then he needs another sign. And God gives him that sign. And then God takes away all but 300 of his men. And they go on to defeat the Midianite army. And Israel is once again delivered. Do you remember Joshua from last week? That Pastor Paul uh, painted a picture of. Do you remember Joshua the kind of the personality of Joshua. Joshua was this, this warrior, this go-getter. If you remember from the very beginning, when the Israelites first came to the promised land and they sent in spies to, to check out the promised land, Joshua was one of two who said, let's go, let's get this, we can do this, we can, we can win this, we can take over, we're going to do this. Joshua was this, this go-getter. He was ready for battle. He was ready to take on. He would not give away his shot to go in and take the promised land and God had to pull back on the reins to have him wait by marching for seven days around the city he was ready for battle he was ready to go get the promised land I love that Gideon provides us with this vast 
contrast to Joshua. We find him hiding in the winepress. We find him afraid of the Midianites, afraid of the oppressors. We find him hiding in that winepress. Even when God gave him very specific instructions, he needed some extra convincing. He needed God to come through with some signs, and he was willing to wait for it till God came and and gave him the signs, the extra convincing that he needed. Can I tell you something that I've discovered in my in my time in walking with Christ? Sometimes God tells us to wait. Sometimes God pulls the reins back on us and tells us to wait. But sometimes God tells us to go. And sometimes it takes the thumb of God in our back, nudging us along and tells us it's time to go. It's time to move. And I love that God uses both personalities and both characters of Joshua and Gideon. Sometimes we paint pictures, I think, of what the ideal follower of God looks like. And we try to put certain characteristics and certain personality types of of what it looks like to be a follower of God. But what I see here is that God is willing and able to use all personality types. He's willing to use Joshua who was that go-getter. He was willing to use Gideon who needed a little extra convincing. He's willing to use both personalities. And I love that about God, that God doesn't just pick and choose one certain type of person to accomplish his mission. He invites all of us whether we're the go-getters or we're the, eh, I'm not so sure, God. Whether, whatever, whatever we are, God is willing to use us and he invites us to be part of his epic story. What about you, though? Maybe for some of you, last week God was telling you to wait. Maybe God revealed to you that it is time to just wait. You want something, you're, you're going for something, and God said, it's just time to wait. Maybe, though, for some of you, today, God is saying, it's time to go. It's time to move. It's time to take on what I have given you. That dream that I've given you or that, that vision that I've given you and that, that passion that I've given you to do something, it is time to go. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to go? As we, uh, as we prepare for just a couple minutes of reflection time, before we do that, I want to circle back to the reason that the story says the Israelites were in this predicament in the first place. Again, they had multiple conductors conducting their orchestra. They had been tempted by the gods of the culture and the gods of society, and they turned towards them, and so it placed them in this predicament where they were oppressed and suffering hardships. There's a very little talked about section of the story of Gideon. In fact, I didn't even read it in this retelling of the story because it comes a little bit later. I didn't even talk about it, but it's a little talked about section of Gideon's story. After victory, after, after the, the army had, had destroyed the Midianites, after that, Gideon told his men, his soldiers, I want you to give me one earring from all the earrings and jewelry that you plundered 
from the Midianite army. They would, they would take their stuff. Gideon said, I want everyone to give me one of those. And so he collected it. He got all of those, those earrings and in in those jewels. And he melted it down and he turned it into, uh, into this, this, uh, this ephod. Um, and so, uh, which is kind of like this uh, breastplate relic to kind of commemorate the victory in battle. And he, and he melted them down and turned it into this, this relic. And, uh, and here's what Judges chapter 8 verse 27 says. God, or Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Even after all of this that Gideon had led the people of God through, even after all of this, the lure of another god or another idol proved to be a stumbling block for the Israelites and even for Gideon. Even a relic that signified what God had done through Gideon became a snare, a stumbling block for Gideon and the Israelite people. If we were to fast forward through the story, we'd see that the cycle begins once again, where people turn away from God. So are there multiple conductors in your life? Again, I'm not here to suggest that any suffering or any hardship or oppression that, that may be very real in your life is a result of idolatry. That's not what I'm here to suggest. I am simply here to proclaim that when we are following too many conductors, we miss out on the beauty that God has for us. And so we're going to end this way. 60, 90 seconds of quiet reflection. What do you think about? Are there things in your life that God has placed in your life, a mission, a, a, a instruction, a, a calling, is God telling you that it's time to go? There may be things that you're waiting on, but is there something that God is telling you, go, it's time to go? And likewise, are there multiple conductors in your life? In our time of reflection, I would ask you to, to seek the heart of God. God, if there are multiple conductors in my life, I repent of that. I want to follow the one true God. We're going to take 60 seconds in quiet reflection and then we'll close in prayer. God, we are thankful for your story. The story, the epic story that you have invited us to be a part of. 
We're thankful for the, the stories and the narratives that we have of you working in and through your people. Stories like the story of Gideon. God, if there are things in our lives that you have called us to, and it is time to go, would you reveal those to us? And would you give the boldness and the courage to say, okay, it's time to go. And God, if there are areas in our lives where we have divided our attention from you to to follow multiple conductors or, or multiple gods or idols in our lives, whatever that may look like, God, would you reveal those to us? And may we be obedient to repent of that, to turn from that, to commit to following you. God, our God, creator God, Yahweh. We want to live lives following you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.